0: Our God, it is our delight to be able to come to your word, to have a copy of it in our own laps, in our own possession, in our own language. What an incredible blessing it is to have your revelation to mankind so readily available to us. We take this for granted sometimes, and we do not want to do that. We know that it has cost many people dearly to provide your word in our own tongue, and so we thank you for that. And we acknowledge again our dependence upon you, O Spirit of God, to instruct us and to teach us in your word. May you show us the glory of Christ, and may we be filled with wonder, love, and praise as a result of what we learn about you and your word. Bless this time, we ask, for the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are colored with confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees. That really is the backdrop against which most of the passages in those Gospels um, are written that this constant conflict, this constant strife between Jesus and the religious leaders, amid all of the hostility and opposition that Jesus had with all of the religious leaders and all of the arguments that he engaged in with these different people, he never lost one argument. They They never got the best of him in any conversation or discussion. Think of it this way. If you knew everything, and you could read men's thoughts and minds. Would you ever lose an argument? No. And then add to the fact, add, add to the fact, add to that the fact that the Jews had the audacity to engage Jesus in discussions about the law. I mean, talk about jumping in on somebody else's home turf. This was the giver of the law, the writer of the law. He was the one who authored the law, and yet they would enter into these discussions with him about the nature of the law and. Then interpretations of the law and they lost every single time every time they lost and they lost big you would never if you were a pharisee ever want to discuss the law with Jesus he knew your heart he knew your mind what you were thinking and he knew far more than you do i don't think they ever entered into a single discussion where they said to themselves you know what, i think we i think we can get him or i don't sorry let me rephrase this i don't think they ever entered into a single discussion with Jesus where they thought to themselves we're going to lose this I think every conversation they entered into with Jesus, they expected to win. And you know why? He was an uneducated hick from Galilee. This is a carpenter's son. He's never attended any of the rabbinical schools. He's never been taught by the great rabbis of our day. He hasn't spent his days in Jerusalem studying and pouring over the law. We've got him on this one. And every time, he bested them. Every time, he won the argument and won the discussion, and he made them look publicly like fools every single time. Now why is this? Did Jesus engage in those conversations just to make sport of the Pharisees and the religious leaders? I don't believe that he did. I don't believe he engaged in those conversations just to make them look publicly like idiots, like fools. Making them look like fools publicly was simply the results of entering into discussion with Jesus and losing publicly. That's just what happened. But Jesus didn't enter into those conversations with the intent of making them look like fools. You know why he entered into those conversations? To reveal their unbelief. That's why he did it. It was to shine the light of truth upon a darkened heart and to show the horrific nature of unbelief and its eternal consequences. And the more they resisted that light and the more they opposed it and the more they fought against it, the more foolish they looked. And they did this publicly and so they looked publicly like fools. We saw that back in, we saw that last week in John chapter 7. When the Jews entered into a discussion with Jesus about that miracle that he did back in chapter 5 on the Sabbath, And they tried to discuss, they were accusing him of violating the Sabbath. And you saw last week how Jesus turned the tables on them and showed them that in their everyday practice of circumcising infants, they confessed and they were admitting that there are some works of necessity which must be done on the Sabbath, and it's not a violation of the Sabbath, to do those works on the Sabbath. And he made them look like fools. And then they silenced. They just they silenced themselves. They shut up. There came a point where they said nothing, and he was teaching in the temple, and they said nothing to him. So now we pick it up in verse 25 of chapter 7. Verse 25. This kind of begins now a little bit of a different... John turns the corner, as it were, and begins to discuss something a little bit different. Up until now, it has been Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees, really. Now, John turns the corner, and we begin to see the reaction of the crowd to this discussion. Remember, this is a public place. It is in the temple, Jesus has been teaching publicly, there are people gathered around, the Jews who are hostile to Jesus, and by Jews we mean not your hoi polloi Jews, the average people, but the religious leaders had gathered around and engaged him in a conversation. Now the public is watching this, they are listening to their leaders discuss these things with Jesus. Verse 25 now begins to tell us about the reaction of the crowd to the teaching of Jesus and to the inactivity of the leaders in stopping Jesus. And we're going to notice now, not in the reaction of the crowd, that there is a lot of confusion among the people regarding who the Christ was. And for the rest of the chapter, this is the discussion that goes on. This is the Christ. No, it's not the Christ. Well, we know where he is from. Well, if we know where he is from, we know that he would free be from Bethlehem, yet he claims to be the Messiah, and yet he comes from Nazareth, not Bethlehem. Shouldn't he be a descendant of David? What is he doing coming from from Galilee and Nazareth? Well, we think that he might be then the prophet. Well, is the prophet the same as the Christ? And on and on this thing goes. Others were saying, no, he can't be the Christ. and say so They belong to that group that said that uh, he was uh, leading the people astray. So there's this conflict or this discussion going on about who is this individual sitting in the temple and teaching. And the crowd, the multitude, are confused about who the Christ is. And we're going to see today in verses 25, we're going to bite off a big chunk, 25 through 29, that the confusion of the crowd was created by the inactivity of the leaders or the unwillingness of the leaders to deal with Jesus, by, their, by the leaders' reaction to Jesus. That confusion is compounded by their own misunderstanding of Jesus and the Messiah. And then third, that a misunderstanding or confusion was confronted by Jesus. So it is created by the leaders. It is compounded by the people's misunderstanding of who the Messiah is. And then third, it's confronted by Jesus. So verses 25 and 26, it is created, that confusion is created by the leaders inaction regarding Jesus. Look at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? I want you to know something about that phrase. According to commentators, commentaries, that beginning question of verse 25 is asked in such a way as to expect or even demand an affirmative answer. So it's not that they're, they're wondering, is this true or not? They're asking it in such a way as to lead you into an affirmative answer. To, to say it in English to kind of communicate the sense of it would be like me saying this. Look, isn't this the guy they're trying to kill, right? This is the guy they're trying to kill. Is it not? And the obvious answer to the question is yes. Because as I pointed out in weeks past, it was the worst kept secret in all of Jerusalem that the intention of the leaders was to kill Him. As much as they might deny it, which they did in verse 20, as much as they might try and deny that that was their intention to kill Him, it obviously was. And everybody knew about it. And the people in the crowd knew about it. So much so that in verse 13 it says, the people were afraid even to speak of Jesus publicly because of what the religious leaders might do. They knew how hostile they were to Jesus. They knew that Jesus was a marked man. And to speak openly about Jesus would incur the wrath of the religious leaders. Everybody knew that they were trying to kill Jesus, and so that's their statement. Is this not the one? This is the guy they're trying to kill, right? Well, if it is, then how is it, verse 26, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. How is it that he's speaking publicly? The word actually means means confidently or boldly, and it had the idea of being unhindered or unfettered in something with an openness and a freeness. It's used in a beautiful sense. I think it's Hebrews chapter 6 where we are given unfettered or unhindered access to the throne of grace. It is without restraint. And so what the people are doing is they're putting two and two together and they're not coming up with four. They're saying, we know on one hand that the intention of our leaders is to kill Him. That is obvious. That is a given. He's a marked man. And yet, here He is sitting in the temple teaching openly, unhindered, unfettered, And they're saying nothing and doing nothing to him. See, after the confrontation that ended with verse 24, they just zipped their lips. I mean, it does not make any sense to have any conversation with him in a public place at all because you are just asking for trouble. You are asking to lose face. And so they said nothing. And they they didn't seize him. And the people are looking at that saying they want to kill him, but they're doing nothing about his teaching. How does this come together? This is the guy they're trying to kill, and yet they're allowing him to teach in the temple. Why don't they do something about it? And see, this would lead to them to the conclusion that, you see it in verse 26, maybe the elders, the religious leaders of the people have really found out that this is the Christ. That's the conclusion they would be driven to. I want you to put yourself for a moment in the shoes of the religious leaders. They were caught in a pickle, a dilemma. And here was their dilemma. Jesus teaching in the temple and they really have three options. Number one, they can seize him, which they're going to try and do later on. They can seize him. But here's the problem with seizing him. We know that there was a large segment of people in Jerusalem that felt favorably about Jesus. We see down in verse 30 that there's a large group of people that believe on him during this period of time. We know back from above verse 13 that there were some people who said, No, he's a good man. He's teaching good things. Just leave him alone. There was a large group of people that at least were either undecided or favorable towards Jesus. They, They didn't believe him to be a false prophet leading the people astray. So if they seize him, and he has a large following in Jerusalem, what is going to happen among the Jews? They're going to do what Jews at that time always did, anytime anything happened, which might sort of spark their animosity. They're going to riot. They're going to riot. There had already been a number of false messiahs who had risen up and led the people astray and sparked these little political revolts that the Romans had to come in and constantly put down by crucifying Jews and uh, oppressing the people. And the Jews feared that. Later on in chapter 11, they said, "If we look, if we leave Jesus alone, this is after the healing of Lazarus, if we leave him alone, the whole nation's going to follow after him, and then what? Once he gets a large following, what's going to happen? People are going to go after him, and then the Romans will come in, and we will lose our country. They feared a riot among the people. If they seize him publicly, the people are going to say, hey, they're going to get upset, so this is our Messiah, and they fear sparking a riot. When they did seize Jesus, do you remember when it was? It was at night. It was in a secluded location, and it was just his 12 disciples, right, in a garden. And they had to get one of the disciples to betray his location so that they knew where to go and get him. And they went and got him under the cover of darkness, and they tried him overnight and ran that whole thing all the way through so that they could crucify him first thing in the morning before people really even got up to know what was going on. They feared a riot, so they can't seize him. And then there's a second option. They could engage in an argument with him in public, right? No, they've learned their lesson. You don't engage in an argument with him publicly. You you, you keep your mouth shut. The third option was to do nothing. But if they do nothing, he continues to teach in the temple and draw away people after himself. That's giving him opportunity to convince people, to gain a following. So if we seize him, we might lose our nation. If we argue with him, we're going to lose our reputation. And if we do nothing, we're going to lose our following. What is a murderous Jew to do in such a situation as that? There are no good options, are there? There's nothing you can do which is going to come out in your favor. They're doing nothing, and it's leading the people to say, "Have our elders, have the rulers, come to the conclusion that this is indeed the Christ?" Verse 26. He's saying they're saying he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? Now, whereas the the first question, is this not the one they're seeking to kill, was worded in such a way as to demand an affirmative answer, the second question at the end of verse 26 is worded in such a way as to demand a negative answer. So it's almost like they are raising the question in such a way and then immediately dismissing it by expecting a negative answer to the question. This isn't the one that the, the, the rulers haven't really come to the conclusion, this is the Christ, have they? They're shaking their head, no, that can't be it. So they raise the question, it's dismissed immediately. But listen, the question is raised. That's the key. This is what is floating around in the minds of the people. Is it possible, and that would be really their only conclusion, that the inactivity of the leaders in dealing with Jesus teaching in the temple is in fact an unspoken but implicit endorsement of what he is doing and his teaching? Are they starting to come around and are our leaders starting to change their mind? That that the inactivity of the leaders created confusion in the minds of the people about who Jesus was and his claims and what he was teaching. Second, Verse 27, that, cre- that confusion in the minds of the people was compounded by their misunderstanding of the Messiah. Look at verse 27. However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Now that statement of verse 27 is spoken by the same group, obviously, that's speaking in verses 25 and 26. But this expresses their own confusion about who Christ was or who Jesus was and what his claims were. They really were confused about two things. Number one, who is this Jesus and where did he come from? And number two, what should we expect about the Messiah? They were confused about those two things. Where did Jesus come from and what should we expect from the Messiah? So their statement regarding Jesus was, we know where this man is from. So the religious leaders, this is going on in the minds of the people, the religious leaders, are they really coming to the conclusion that he's the Christ? That can't be it because we know where he's from. Where was Jesus from? Well, he was from Nazareth, right? That was widely held among the Jews. Remember back in chapter 6 when Jesus said, I've come down out of heaven, they said, Is this not Mary and Joseph's son whom we know? How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? They knew where he was from. He was from Nazareth. He's a carpenter's son. We know his parents, Mary and Joseph. We know his brothers. We know them. We've seen this boy grow up. Everybody knows that he comes from Galilee and from Nazareth. But when the Christ comes, nobody's going to know where he comes from. We'll get to that statement in just a second. But concerning Jesus, we know where he comes from. And they assumed that he came from Nazareth. And because he came from Nazareth, he couldn't fulfill the requirements for being the Christ because they had a misunderstanding of what, of what, the, who the, where the Christ should come from, who the Christ was. Look down in verse 42. You see the people again expressing their understanding Jesus comes from Nazareth and how he therefore can't be the Christ. Verse 42. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem? The village where David was? Where did they expect the Christ from? At least this group. From Bethlehem. We, we know he comes from Nazareth, so he can't be it. Right? That's sound reasoning right there, isn't it? Isn't that brilliant thinking right there? Let's reject him because he comes from Nazareth. You see that the Pharisees did the exact same thing up in verse fifty one. Our law does when Nicodemus gives this clear headed suggestion that maybe we should hear him out before we condemn him, verse fifty one, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, you're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So they discredited Jesus' credentials, even when suggested by Nicodemus, on what basis? Jesus is from Galilee, he's from Nazareth. Now let me ask you the question, was Jesus from Nazareth? You say yes and no, right? It depends on what you mean by that. Was he from Nazareth? Was Jesus from Nazareth? Where was he born? Bethlehem. So not Nazareth. So he wasn't from Nazareth in the sense that he was born in Nazareth. But where did Jesus grow up? In Nazareth. Everybody knew. Son of Joseph and Mary. Jesus of Nazareth. He was Joseph's son, a carpenter's son. They grew up in Nazareth. He's from Galilee. He's from Galilee and up in the north. So did Jesus come from Nazareth? Yes and no. Now their objection is a real shallow one, isn't it? Rejecting him based upon where he comes from, that's a shallow objection to his claims. And by the way, it is an objection that they had really no excuse to make whatsoever because the Jews were fastidious with their record keeping and they could have gone, I don't know, maybe a few blocks into the record center of Jerusalem and found out where Jesus was born and where he came from and they would have seen that it came from Bethlehem and that he wasn't from Nazareth. They could have found that out. That that piece of information was obvious to them. It was available to them. They could have They could have found the solution to their own dilemma or the solution to their own question even by just doing a little bit of research. But it's a shallow objection to his claims. Do you realize that most objections that unbelievers make to the claims of Christ and of Christianity are shallow objections at best? You engage an unbeliever in a discussion about why they reject the claims of Christianity and you will find that most unbelievers don't even know what the claims of Christianity are. And then once you tell them, they will reject them and the reasoning that they will use will be so shallow and so inane and so insane and so nonsensical as to almost be laughable. I've heard unbelievers give objections to Christianity where I think to myself, my eight-year-old could answer that objection. You seriously are you going to reason that way? How shallow do you have to be? But objections to Christianity and to Christ and the reason that people reject Christianity has nothing to do with a well-thought-out, well-reasoned, well-articulated, logical, factual case. You know what it's based on? You know why people reject it? They love what? Darkness. And all they need is the most shallow and the most superficial reason possible embrace their darkness and you can confront them with their worldview and you can show them that the logical conclusion of their worldview is insanity and it doesn't work and they will be content with that they don't need any foundation for their worldview just as long as they do not have to bow the knee to christ just as long as they can reject the light and embrace darkness that's all that they're interested in shallow objections to christianity is what you get from people who reject christianity because it's not about but they think they understand christianity But here's what it boils down to. In their minds, they think, oh, we have stumbled upon some brilliant philosophical, logical fact that has caused the whole edifice of Christianity to come crumbling down at our feet into the ash bin of history. That's their thinking. And all it is is silly, illogical, irrational, shallow reasoning. J.C. Ryle says this, in religious matters, people are easily satisfied with very imperfect and superficial reasoning, end quote. It's the truth. People are satisfied with very imperfect and superficial reasoning, and that's all they need in order to keep their love for darkness. So it's a shallow objection that they offer. Uh, He can't be the Christ because he's from Nazareth. They could have walked to a place in Jerusalem and seen that he was born in Bethlehem because they had those records and they were available to them. The second thing that they misunderstood was not only where Jesus was from, but where the Messiah would come from. You see that at the end of verse 27 where they say when the Christ, whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. According to William Hendrickson in his commentary on the Gospel of John, there was at the time of Jesus two views regarding the Messiah. And these are actually polar opposites, so get ready for this. And the Jews were kind of divided into two camps. First, there was a group like the Sanhedrin, and this was the official view of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, that the Messiah would be born at Bethlehem. That was the official view of the religious leaders of the nation, that the Messiah would be born at Bethlehem. And that was in fulfillment to Micah 5, verse 2, which you get probably in half the Christmas cards that you will get later this year. Micah 5, verse 2, which says, As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. And that's quoted in Matthew chapter two, verse six, I think it is, as being fulfilled in the death of Christ. So the Pharisees and the religious leaders believed that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And you see that expressed even down later on, even though this group in chapter at the well it's the top of my page, it's verse. 27. Even though this group in verse 27 says, we don't know where the Messiah is coming from, you see later on that there's a group of Jews down at the bottom of the passage, verse 42. Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem? You see these two polar opposites? One group says, we don't know where he's going to come from, so he can't be it. The other group says, we know he's going to come from Bethlehem, and he comes from Nazareth, so he can't be it. And both of these, both of these excuses are used, both of these reasons are used to excuse Jesus' claims. So there were two conflicting opinions. One, that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, and second, that the Messiah would come from we don't know where. And that's what's expressed in verse 27. Whenever the Messiah comes, we're not going to know where he comes from, but we know where Jesus comes from. And they base that on passages like Micah 3 verse or Malachi 3, verse 1, where it says, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That's the idea. He will suddenly arrive in his temple. And the prediction or the thinking of the people in the tradition and even in many of the apocryphal writings was that when the Messiah came, people would be like, well, where did he come from? He just suddenly appeared here. This is the first we see of him. All of a sudden he shows up doing Messianic credentials out of nowhere. We have no idea where he comes from. We have no idea of his lineage. We have no idea where he was raised. Or if he was raised, just appears out of nowhere as the Messiah. That was the second view among the Jews. So you can see how they express that in verse 27. When the Messiah comes, we're not going to know where he comes from, but we know where Jesus is from, therefore he can't be the Messiah, right? So both of these views among the Jews, in their minds, disqualified Jesus from being the Messiah. Both of those views were wrong. Sorry, sorry, not the first one. The first one was right, that he came from Bethlehem, but it was wrong in how they applied that to Jesus, saying, since he doesn't come from Bethlehem, he doesn't fit the credentials, when in fact, he did come from Bethlehem and he did fit the credentials. So that's the confusion of the people. No one knows where the Messiah is coming from. Now look how Jesus confronts it in verse 28. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Verse 28, Jesus cried out in the temple. This is really interesting. Only five times in the Gospels do we read of Jesus crying out or shouting something. The prophets, and it's Isaiah, I believe it's verse chapter 50, speaks of Jesus or foretells that Jesus would not raise his voice in the streets. In other words, he's not going to be the type of person who goes and gins people up. He's not going to be the type of person who goes in a lot of activity, a lot of voice, and shouting and, and whipping people into a frenzy. That's not That was not the modus operandi of Jesus. Very rarely did he ever raise his voice. And he raised his voice because he was trying to emphasize something. He wanted everybody to hear it because what he says here is very important. Only five times in all four Gospels do we read of Jesus crying out or shouting something. Two of them are cries from the cross, at the end of Matthew and at the end of Mark. Two of those are shouts from the cross, where he cries out and then he gave up his spirit. That's in Mark. Three of those five times are all in the Gospel of John. Of those three that are in John's Gospel, two of them are in chapter 7. Once in verse 28, where Jesus cries out teaching in the temple, and once in verse 37. On the last and the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So two of them here in John chapter 7 and the other reference in John is John 12 verse 44 where Jesus cries out, and this is during the last week of his life, and he is begging with the people to believe upon him and to escape the wrath of God by trusting themselves to him. Believe upon me and escape God's wrath. So all three of these times in the Gospel of John, they're very important statements that Jesus is making. And he is crying out and he is shouting so that people will hear, people will see the seriousness of what he is about to say. And what he says in verse 28 and 29 is very serious. Look at verse 28. You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. That's a very perplexing statement, and I'll tell you why. Two reasons. First, it seems as if Jesus in that verse, verse 28, is contradicting things that he says elsewhere in the Gospel of John. Second, it seems in verse 28 as if Jesus is contradicting himself. Let me show you what I mean. Elsewhere in the Gospel of John, John chapter 8, verse 14 and verse 19, Jesus says something the exact opposite of that to this very same group of Jews, or to the to the Jewish leaders. Chapter 8, verse 19. Jesus was saying, uh, so they were saying to him, Where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Up in verse 14, Jesus said, Even if my testimony testify about myself, My testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Do you see that? In chapter 7, he says, you know who I am and you know where I come from. In chapter 8, he says, you don't know where I come from and you don't know who I am. So it seems as if what he's saying in verse 28 of chapter 7 contradicts what he says elsewhere to these same Jews. Do they know him or not? Do they know where he's from or not? Secondly, it almost seems as if what Jesus says in verse 28 contradicts itself. Look at verse 28. He says, You know me and know where I'm from. I've not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Who's he speaking of there? That they do not know. Speaking of the Father. But he says at the beginning of verse 28, You know me. At the end of verse 28, you don't know my Father. Now if it is true, as Jesus says elsewhere, and he does in chapter 5, that to know him is to know the Father, to see him is to see the Father, to be in relationship with him is to be in relationship with the Father, to honor the Son is to honor the Father. If those two are so closely connected in their In their substance and their essence and their deity, that to have one is to have the other. How can Jesus say in verse 28? You know me, but you don't know my Father. Since to know Christ is to know whom? It is to know the Father. So when Jesus says, You know me and you know where I am from, what is he saying? What's he getting at? What's the meaning of that? There are three ways of understanding it. First, it could be that what Jesus is giving there is a question at the beginning of verse 28. In other words, he would be saying something like this Do you know me? Do you know my Father? That it's a question, not a statement. And that's really probably, that's been suggested by commentaries throughout the years, but it's probably not really what's going on. You say, Jim, couldn't you just look at the Greek and see if there's a question mark at the end of the sentence? Well, no, the Greek didn't have punctuation or, or capitalization or anything like that. So you can't just look and see if there's a question mark at the end of the sentence. You just have to look at the context and decide, is this a sentence or a statement? Sometimes it's obvious that it's a question. Sometimes it's not so obvious whether it's a question. It is, I guess, remotely possible that Jesus is asking a question here, but I don't think that's the best explanation. There's a second possibility. It could be that what Jesus is doing is simply affirming, to a degree, what they did know to be true. In other words, Jesus is saying something like this. You do know me, to a point. You know that I do come from Nazareth. You know my mom. You know my dad. You know my brothers. You know where I grew up. You do have a knowledge of me. And you also know where I come from, that I come from Nazareth. But... You only know to a point. It's a very shallow understanding of me that you do have. You do know me, but you don't know me in the way that would allow you to know the Father. That's the idea. That's a, that's a possibility. Uh, maybe you lean toward that. I would take the third one. There is a third possibility. And you know I always save the third one for last because it sticks in your mind and not the other two. There's a third possibility, and that is that Jesus is speaking here with a note or a ring of sarcasm, of irony. And he is saying something like this. Oh, you know me. You know my father. Or sorry, you know me and you know where I come from. It's a sarcastic statement. They claim to have a knowledge of him and that's why they rejected him. It's based upon this what? Shallow understanding. A superficial appearance. And so they, they know, you know me. And they would claim that we know you. We know where you come from. And Jesus is saying, yeah, oh, you know me. I say this to my kids all the time, right? I need you to do this. Oh, I know. Right, you know. Yeah, that's the, yeah, you know. That's why I didn't have to tell you. That's why I wasn't going to get done, because you know. right? So it's a, sarcastic, it's a sarcastic statement. You say, would Jesus ever use sarcasm? Yeah, read John 10, read John 8, read Matthew 23. There are a lot of passages where Jesus uses the biting edge of sarcasm to accomplish a very good purpose. There's nothing sinful or wrong about sarcasm, and Jesus uses it very well. And I think he's doing the same thing here. They have rejected him because they knew certain things about him. And he's saying, you know me? You know where I'm from? Yeah, right. You don't. You do not know really truly. He's he's stating it positively, but he means the opposite. That's the irony or the sarcasm of the statement. You claim to know me, but you do not know me. You think you know where I'm from, but you have no idea where I'm from. And that becomes the basis for him to affirm, which we have, seen, what we have seen him affirm over and over in John's Gospel, that he was sent by the Father, that he is here on a divine mission, that he is doing the works of the Father, he speaks the words of the Father. Everything he does is in submission to the Father for the Father's glory. It's all on cue, it's all planned, it's all purposed. There's nothing random about it. He is not a ran- renegade deity off doing his own thing. He is doing what the Father had given him to do. And then he affirms to them, and the Father, you do not know. You do not know the Father. He sent me, but him you do not know. And he is the one, look how Jesus words it, who is the true one. In other words, he is reality, he is the truth, and you do not know him. Now I want you to consider for just a moment how, how much of a scandalous critique that is of the Pharisees. They spent their days poring over the law constantly. They knew the law. They knew the text of Scripture. They trafficked in spiritual things constantly. They handled the law. They memorized the law. They sought to obey the law. And Jesus is saying, but the one who gave the law, you do not know. You do not know. The Jews of Jesus' day were just like the Jews of Jeremiah's day, whom Jeremiah describes this way. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law do not know Me. Hosea 4.6 My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. These are the people who have the oracles of God. They have received the prophets. They have received the law. They have all of those blessings, but the God of the law, the God of the Word, they do not know. My people are destroyed because they do not know me. They handle the law, but they do not know the God of the Word. And friends, that's a warning to you and I. We can become so familiar and traffic so frequently in spiritual things that we neglect to know the God who has given us those spiritual blessings. We become so familiar with the things that He has given to us and graced us with. And we'd be traffic in spiritual things so much by attending church, by singing the songs, by reading spiritual things that we have a head knowledge and if it doesn't affect our heart knowledge then we are in the same condition of the Jews of the Old Testament that we can know the word so well and yet not know the God who gave the word. That is a very real spiritual danger. And that is what Jesus is criticizing them for. You think you know me. You don't know me. You think you know where I'm from. You do not know where I'm from. The God who has sent me, Him you do not No. You are out of relationship with that God. If they had known the Father, they would have received the Son. If they had known their God, they would have recognized when their God walked among them. But they didn't know their God. And so when He walked among them, they were blinded to it. They were so blinded by their self righteous, legalistic works of the law that when God walked among them, they did not recognize it. They didn't recognize the Son because they didn't know the Father. If they had belonged to the Father, If they had known the Father, if they had known the God of the Old Testament, and when he appeared, they would have said, this is the one of whom Moses and the prophets spoke. This is the one. He is the one. And they would have bowed down and worshipped him, but they didn't. Now when we started this passage in verse 25, they had a dilemma, right? They had three options. Seize him, argue with him, or leave him alone. Those are the three options. None of them are good options. But they leave him alone in the temple, and he continues to teach openly, unhindered, confidently, with authority, unfettered. People are listening. People are believing. People are learning. People are are feeling more and more sympathetic to him. And Jesus continues to teach. And in so doing, he forced their hand. He forced their hand. They couldn't leave him alone. They didn't want to argue, and they didn't want to feel like seizing him. But eventually, seizing him is going to be the best thing. And so that's what they try and do. And look at verse 30. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. By teaching in the, in the temple, Jesus forced their hand. He forced them to try and do something about it, and they tried to seize him. But his hour was not yet come. And we're gonna pick up verse 30 next week. The week before Easter Sunday, we're gonna talk about that hour. And what that was, and what the plan of God was for that hour, and why everything had to wait for that hour to culminate in its fullness to the glory of God. Alright, let's pray together. Oh, Father, your word is, is true and we thank You for it. We affirm that with our hearts. We know that there are, there are contained in Your Word so many marvelous things and so many gracious things that You have shown us and revealed to us. Most important and most significant of which is Your Son. And we are so thankful that He is God in human flesh. That He came, that He lived here, and that He walked among us. And that He died on a cross to save us from our sins. Thank You for so perfect a Savior and so perfect a salvation. Thank you that by your grace, O God, you have brought us to know the Son. And in knowing him, we know you. And we thank you that we have available to us in your word and through your Son, a true knowledge of you, the eternal, true, existent, loving, caring, gracious, and almighty God. Thank you, O Father, that you are who you are and that you have called us to yourself. What a joy it is to worship and to serve you. And we pray, O God, that you would unite our hearts together in love for that service and adoration of your Son for the glory of our triune God, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.